You are listening to Change Agents, conversations with human rights and social justice advocates on WERU-FM. I am Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guest today is Denise Wright, who has worked to help immigrants coming to Belfast, Northern Ireland for many years. Uh, We also uh, will compare her work with my efforts to reduce degrading language, harassment, and violence toward immigrants in Maine. Denise, let me just start um, going back, way back, which was, uh, when did you first realize, or maybe remembering back, know that you were an advocate? I think probably as a relatively young child in primary school, um, maybe around the age of seven or eight. I think I came from a family of people who were involved in social change, particularly my grandmother. But I remember very clearly at school, there was an issue in the playground, as there would be in many schools, possibly still today, where the boys used to pull the girls' skirts up to reveal their underwear. And it seemed that the teachers weren't taking this particularly seriously and there were no consequences for the boys. So I remember standing on the steps of the dinner hall telling the girls the next boy who did this was going to have his short trousers removed um, in a gesture of solidarity amongst the ladies. And we we captured the next poor boy who did this and removed his short trousers. Um, I got caught and I remember standing in front of the class. That was many years ago now, well, well over 50, putting my hand out to receive a smack, one smack with the ruler from a teacher who I suspect was fairly sympathetic to my cause. But that is the first situation I remember being in. Well, that is somewhat of a uh, unique um, effort. Uh, So as you moved um, out of primary school and into what um, sort of what we might also call middle school, um, uh, which would be... um, uh, students who are uh, about six, seven, and eight years old, and then on the high school, were were you also being an advocate? Maybe not quite as overtly as in those early days, but I certainly felt very strongly about animal rights and about nature. I was a vegetarian, and vegetarians in Northern Ireland in the 1970s were fairly rare. Um, and it was very difficult to, to be catered for. So I, I'd certainly been expressing my opinions quite loudly. And my family would have said I would have stepped into any conversation where I felt was any level of injustice. And also, I suppose, growing up in conflict, I, I was quite vocal around those issues about how people were the same and trying to build relationships and friendships across those. Uh- that just reminded me that that uh, I've been, as you know, coming to Northern Ireland for around 20, 20 years. But even recently, I went in a restaurant in Derry, London Derry, where I asked if I could, um, what kind of vegetarian food they had. And they said, well, we have chicken. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not surprising. Yeah. Um, And uh, where did you go to what we call college um, 
in the US and you call what is university? it? University. Uh, and we sometimes say university. Uh, were, were you in Belfast or did you go to the UK? I, when I was at school, I very much hoped that I would, I planned to nurse. I planned to go and travel overseas, particularly to work in refugee camps. But my final year of, well, of school, I was waiting. I had a place at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, which is one of the foremost children's hospitals in the world. But just before I was heading off there, my parents were killed by carbon monoxide poisoning in Portugal. I was the oldest child in the family. My brother and sister were still at school. So I didn't manage to escape Northern Ireland and get to London. I had to stay at home. The local hospital where my mum worked as a ward clerk called me and said, if you were good enough for Great Ormond Street Hospital, we'd very happily take you on to train here. So I did. I stayed in Belfast and trained as a nurse. And I then went back later in my 40s to do a degree in community development at the University of Ulster. And that meant you were in, I guess, many ways raising your your siblings. I was. I yeah. was, yes. Um, and when did you, well, but before talking about uh, doing work on immigration, you at some point in this, in your spare time, which was probably no spare time, you became an ordained minister. I did. I left community nursing in North and West Belfast um, during the Troubles in 1998, just when we got our peace agreement, and I went into the church, became a pastor in, in a local church. It was a church that I'd been involved in founding at the age, I suppose, in my late teens, early 20s, and it was a church where both Catholics and Protestants were able to come and worship together. So it would be described in Northern Ireland as, as one of the new churches. So... Uh, let's um, back up a little bit because you've just talked about Protestant churches and Catholic churches. So I'm going to ask you to do something uh, that's pretty much impossible. But can you give the three or four minute description of uh, what um, often has been referred to as the Troubles? Goodness, Steve, that is a big ask. Um, the troubles in, in Northern Ireland, as we described them, would be the 30-year conflict that we had from the from sort of 60, 1969 right up until 1998. And we had a very long history of division in Ireland. Um, I was under British rule for many years. Northern Ireland was divided into um, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland in 1921. And there was a lot of unrest. There were a lot of issues around um, civil rights in the 1960s. And to cut a very long story short, what began as a very peaceful civil rights movement descended into violence. And over those 30 years, terrible things were done on all sides, paramilitaries on both the Republican and the Loyalist side, and also by the British forces as well in Northern Ireland. By 1998, we'd come to the point where the majority of people wanted peace. The politicians, with the support of um, President Clinton and the British and Irish governments, um, set up a peace agreement, and the vast majority of people in Northern Ireland voted in the referendum and 
peace, the peace agreement was signed in 1998, but we're still rebuilding relationships from that. And as I often say to the refugees I work with, you'll understand, you know, when, inshallah, when God willing in your country, there's peace again, it'll take a long time for people to begin to trust one another. And that's just the way it's been here in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Uh, many people in Maine uh, know about the peace agreement uh, because George Mitchell uh, uh, is from Maine and uh, and George Mitchell was uh, a both a, a, a senator in the United States Congress um, and uh, but is I think revered by many many people and he, he certainly held very high regard in Northern Ireland yeah um, so, The first, what, what was the first um, job you took that um, got you to start focusing on immigrants? When I was working in the church, in, I began in 1998, the area of South Belfast that the church is in would have been the place that was most diverse. You can imagine when we had conflict, you know, poor economy, terrible weather. Um, Northern Ireland's been an exporter of people rather than an importer. And the few people we were seeing arriving were asylum seekers and refugees. Now I'm talking very small numbers, but they would all have been housed in the area that the church was in. So I was meeting them around the area that the church was in. But I also linked in with an organisation called NISEM, which is Northern Ireland Council for Ethnic Minorities. And they were doing work to support them. And the worker there had contacted me about helping out. And that's how I got involved. But I had been when in my job as a district nurse in North Belfast. It was the area where the Jewish community had settled into Northern Ireland um, in the 1930s. And prior to that, at the end of, I was going to say the last century, century before last, um, the Indian community and a few others. So I had met people who had arrived as migrants many years before and had not integrated well, were living quite isolated lives. And I remember at the time feeling that this is just not acceptable. If some of these elderly ladies I were nursing had known one another, they would have been able to build friendships and relationships. And I came away from that nursing experience thinking there has to be a better way to do this. And um, where were people coming from when you first started, um, sort of after... Uh, Indians and Jewish families were, were coming? Well, we had the Chinese community arrived in the 1960s. Um, at that time, Hong Kong would have been under British control, and so they were able to move freely. So there were a lot of Chinese already in Belfast, but the newer people arriving at that stage would have been a very wide range of countries. Nobody chooses to come to Belfast as a refugee, and they tend to end up there having been dropped off by smugglers or some sort of mishap in the way. So people from um, from Sri Lanka, from Zimbabwe, um, from Sudan, very, a very broad mix of people, not one particular group. And we, we even still today, we have no really um, great understanding of how people arrive here. It just depends on where smugglers can, can move people around the world. Uh, um, 
that is similar to what happens in the U.S., except um, except if you are in the southern border. But if but if um, people coming from Africa or Asia or elsewhere are 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 coming to a a city, uh, often I think. Uh, the consequence of um, the the government, but but perhaps even more more likely, uh, which refugee organization is is bringing people? So suddenly, people just show up. Um, yeah. Oh, of course, Steve. As well as people coming as asylum seekers and refugees, there were people. Where it wasn't forced migration, where there was choice, and the the local universities and the sort of hospitals would have seen people, you know, medical staff, lecturers, people like that who would who would be coming, generally short term, or Queen's University, which is situated in Belfast, would have a lot of international students who would come very short term as well. So the, a, a very broad range of people, and. Uh... Uh, Queen's University, I believe, is viewed as a um, a, a really important um, university uh, that's well known far beyond Northern Ireland. Yes, that that would that would be true. There would be a lot of people, and as any university does, it, it generates a lot of income from international students as well, so that they do get a significant level of support from the university when they're here. So you've, you've, by the way, the description that you gave about the troubles uh, in a very short amount of time was really remarkable. So thank you. Um, and uh, and you mentioned that there are still ongoing uh, conflicts that some, and that does not mean violent conflicts necessarily. Yes. That 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 come to be, but when immigrants came, were they always being met with open arms from everybody in the communities? Unfortunately, not. I there's quite a variation in responses. There are people who very much understand that our health service wouldn't survive without people coming in. So for some people, there's a very pragmatic reason to welcome immigration. It's an economic reason. For many people here, they're just glad to see difference. They're glad to see more than the traditional Protestant Catholic kind of division, which is no no longer as clear. People talk about the two sides here. I, I think personally that that's nonsense now. I think there are some people who very strongly feel Republican, very strongly feel you know unionist loyalist. Um, but there are many, many people in the middle who just want a peaceful life and are very content with that, who really like to see people coming in. But one of the issues we had, I suppose, was when immigration really began. 2004 was probably the start of significant levels. We were bringing in healthcare staff and the European Union expanded. So we were getting many people from Central and Eastern Europe arriving. They were coming in, and as migrants do anywhere in the world, they were looking for accommodation that was affordable. In Northern Ireland, that was in the deprived areas, which had suffered due to the conflict. 
and they, people were very wary of strangers. That's what happens in conflict. You hunker down into your own group and you fear difference. And so people moving into those communities did um, suffer a lot of suspicion and anxiety. There was some very, very overt racism at the time. Some of it was um, neighbourhood misunderstandings as well. You can imagine with seven young boys, men, you know, in their late teens, arrive to take up jobs here. They move into a house between two families and they party all night, as as young people do. And there were issues then um, about neighbours, neighbourhood disputes, but there was overt racism, which was very it was very difficult to deal with at a time when the policing in Northern Ireland hadn't been fully accepted by communities. And that's not just um the communities that would have considered themselves nationalist or republican. They were not able to go into certain of the loyalist areas either. And that's where my work really began. So okay, can we just back up a little bit that you're talking about um, both Catholics and Protestants, but you're also using um, other names for that. So can you Yes, forgive uh, me, Steve. Can, I, give I us forget a, little bit of, a bit of help for those of us who haven't been in Northern Ireland for a while. Okay. So if we're thinking about the divisions within Northern Ireland, I would see generally that the divisions are political, but then that feeds into the religious aspect as well. So there are people who would want their aspiration would be that we would have a united Ireland this island would be united and would be ruled from governed from Dublin there are others in Northern Ireland who feel very very strongly that the north of Ireland Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom so generally generally speaking those that would prefer a united Ireland would be from a Catholic background those that would prefer um the a union the unionist stance with the UK would be from a Protestant background. Within those groupings, the Catholic sort of nationalist grouping, we would talk about Republicans and nationalists. Um, Republicans would traditionally have been those who would have considered that an armed struggle to secure independence was valid. Nationalists would be people who would have the aspiration to be part of United Ireland without that. Now, both generally both people who would describe themselves as Republican nationalists are committed to peace. On the Protestant side, you would have loyalists who would traditionally have been more related with the violence um, during the conflict and people who are unionist who would reject violence altogether. So, and, and once again, for the vast majority of both of those now would have rejected violence and been moving to peaceful means. But still within republicanism and loyalism, there are small elements of paramilitaries who would continue to hold the threat of violence. And uh, I, I know in um, the work that I have done uh, in Derry, Londonderry, uh, but also in Belfast in, in schools, that uh, in asking students uh, questions like, um, just raise your hand if uh, somebody in your family was either uh, killed, um, injured, uh, had to leave Northern Ireland, et cetera. There, almost, almost every hand would go up from one of those. Yeah. So 
So as as much as things have have changed, um, there are still family members who are um, who are living past some really awful circumstances. There are, and I suppose as well, it's worth saying that it's very difficult sometimes for immigrants to understand this, particularly if they come from someone that is very war-torn. In our 30 years of conflict, we had just over 3,000 deaths. For some of the people who are arriving here, they had that in their town or their city in a day. And so the scale is very, very different, but the impact and the legacy and the, I suppose, community trauma that's left is still very significant. Well, I, I remember perhaps 10 years ago when we were working to, together in, um, and uh, we were training people to, um, to facilitate discussions between longtime people from Northern Ireland and immigrants that uh, uh, one of the people who worked in the housing authority came looking very distressed and said, um, I just got a phone call and I may have to leave the workshop. And uh, I got a phone, an anonymous phone call that uh, said, uh, we know that there's a Syrian woman and her children who are coming in to um, to where we live, uh, uh, we're worried that if we, um, they're coming in on Saturday and if we burn down their, um, uh, where they're gonna live, that they may be hurt. Would you suggest that we um, do that, burn it down on Friday? Mm-hmm. Um, just I, was, sort of, I don't remember being involved in that conversation, but there are those issues where people are put out of housing before they even enter it. It is not overly common, but it's enough to significantly traumatise that family. And if you imagine what they have fled from when they finally think they're getting their forever home in Belfast and they're going to be start their new life and that happens, that the trauma that can cause, plus the trauma it causes to the wider community, because very often the wider community is not supportive of of those actions, which some people will say they're taking on behalf of them. You are listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU-FM. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guest today is Denise Wright, who has worked to help immigrants coming to Belfast, Northern Ireland for many years. So when, when you first started this work, were you, um, were you reaching out beyond uh, immigrants to trying to bring um, uh, both Catholics and Protestants to, uh, to be good neighbors to, to immigrants? Yes, absolutely. A lot of the work was to be done in community. So the organisation that I've been working in for 16 years, South Belfast Roundtable, was set up when there was a significant rise in racist hate crime in Belfast. And initially we had thought we would go out and be organising support within communities. 
um, and getting them to speak up against it. But we realised back in those early days in some of those communities, the paramilitary um, influence was still great and potentially they were involved in some of the attacks. So it was very difficult for local people to stand up and speak out without putting their own homes and families at risk. And so we very much went to our approach to do what we call good relations in Belfast, which was to go out and, and talk with communities about some of the issues, but also to provide opportunity for people to meet. I always think racism, most forms of isms come from three things. It's going to be hate, fear or ignorance. And it's very rarely hate. It's almost always fear and ignorance. So what we attempted to do was to bring people together uh, and, and build, build relationships. And one of the things we, we began was something called Belfast Friendship Club, which is simply a local cafe. Steve, where you and I had coffee a number of weeks ago together. And it's a place where on a Thursday evening, up to 60 people from all over the world, including people from Northern Ireland, get together just for no purpose other than to drink coffee and to talk, find out about each other, build relationships. Out of that, there has been a spin-off that we call Small Worlds, where we would take five or six table hosts from different countries across the world and do a cafe-style workshop. And we do it with schools. We've done it with government officials. We've done it with police, probation, anybody who, who's interested. And the participants will take 15 minutes at each table to hear about that person, where they've come from, what they feel life is like in Northern Ireland. And they get an opportunity to ask any question that's respectful. And that has really helped break down barriers, particularly with young people who might have quite hardened attitudes. So there's been a lot of work done trying to, I suppose, use that contact hypothesis in terms of changing attitudes and behaviours. Well, <clears throat> That is really important. Um, do you remember when uh, uh, sort of either the year or close to it when we first started working together? <laughs> it's a very long time ago. That's what I do know. Probably the early 2000s, I would think. Um, possibly 2004. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But and, it does feel like quite a length of time. Well, it has been a length of time. Um, and what uh, what was the purpose of, of that work we did? Well, back in the early days, it was the ending here in the community training of trainers was the first time I met you in Fermanagh when uh, another colleague and myself from Belfast had, had travelled down there to, to undertake the training and that's when I began to come back to Belfast and deliver it in groups really exposing people to suppose to the impact of prejudice bias stereotyping many people here I think possibly because we've had sectarianism particularly between you know our, our political or religious groups here and that for a long time was very acceptable that making racist comments and statements was also then beginning to be deemed acceptable and having to go in and say, no, it's not, it's not acceptable, but more so than that saying, this is the harm it causes. I think recognizing the harm that racist language causes and looking at the whole escalation process where you move from derogatory language and, and you scale up to, to an actual hate crime. And so if you can speak out at the early stages, communities and individuals can address it, you stop that escalation to, to sort of threats and harassment and eventually violence. 
And, and I, in many communities, I believe that's had a significant impact. And uh, can you can you think of any particular um, incident or or perhaps the lack of incidents that mm. that might? Well, I I always say we I mean a lot of the community sector here gets funding from government and other bodies, and they want you to measure the impact of what you're doing. I said, well, it's very hard to measure what doesn't happen. You 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 don't know what you've avoided. But one particularly heartwarming um experience for me was in a primary school in one of these areas where there'd been a lot of difficulties in the early days and I had gone in and I'd done some work within the primary school so very young young children um, from age five till 11 and I was going in doing the whole school and I went I'd done it with a I suppose in the 10 year olds class and the teacher when I went in the next day called me into the classroom as I was heading to a different class and said come in we'd like to the class want to talk to you and one of the little boys who had, would have probably considered one of the troublemakers had said he was going home from school the, the day before after doing the session. And he had heard somebody shouting rude things at people who were from the Philippines, calling them a derogatory term around Chinese. And they were shouting it. And this little boy at the age of 10 had gone up and said, excuse me, these people are from the Philippines. They're not Chinese. And even if they were, you shouldn't say that word. And he said, I'm going home to tell my parents and I'm going to tell the school and you need to stop this. Now, I wouldn't advocate young children take on adults. And after that, I did say to children, be, 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 you know, don't take this on your own. But he was so proud of himself. And this little boy who had possibly been seen as a bit of a troublemaker was now seen as a hero and, you know, was going on to, to stand up. And I think those kind of changes and shifts where you can go from being the baddie to being the goodie in the situation is is really really powerful well it, it's a wonderful story <clears throat> and i found in the work that uh, that i have done in in the us um and many of that in maine that those stories get repeated and shared and repeated and shared um, it, it becomes yeah. it becomes their stories as well it, it does. It does. And I think that's, it's just so encouraging. And probably like yourself, I get stories that come back around to me and were maybe originated in some of the work I've done. And also young people. I, I met somebody who, after many years as a youth worker in an event, and I didn't speak to him. I didn't say very much to him, but I thought, I know you. And then I remember that he'd come to me on community service. He'd been in trouble with the police for bad behaviour. And he came to me at the end of the session. He said, thank you so much for not saying you knew me or why you knew me. But doing that work with you made me determined to, to make a change. And that's why I became a youth worker. So, you know, change is more than one life very often. Yeah. I, I, I have found, um, as, as you thought, that um, I've had those experiences as well. And I, I usually just listen and don't. Don't tell them that uh, that uh, I I was the one that um, told that story first and from firsthand experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so that really brings up a um, a question about uh, when we are trying to really change people's view of of immigrants, or this could be about um, any other form of 
of bias. What's, what's the importance or what's the role of storytelling? Oh, I think storytelling is so important. And in, in our part of the world, this, this little island, we're very good at it. But we also have a little habit, I suppose I have to admit, of not letting the truth get in the way of a good story. And very often where a story starts and when you hear it a couple of years down the line, it's quite embellished. But I think for me, storytelling, I always think back to the whole thing about um, oration, you know, about ethos, pathos and logos. You want to touch people's hearts. You want to give them values. But you also want them to come away with the moral of the story is why it makes a difference. What What is the practical application? And I think good storytellings can change heads and hearts. I When I, I went back to university, as I said earlier, but in my 40s to do a degree in community development, and I did my dissertation on formal and informal anti-racism teaching in primary schools. And I went back after a full year having worked in the school, not seen the children for 12 months, and went back to a group of 11-year-olds and said to them, the work that my colleague Leisha and I did with you last year was it different than what your teacher does? What do you remember? They were able to tell me what they what they had done and, and what they'd got from it after a full year. And I said, do you learn more from your teacher or do you learn more from people like me? And one little boy said, it's just different kind of teaching. Our teachers teach us in our heads. When you told us the stories with the puppets, you taught us in our hearts as well. And that's, I even feel emotional now talking about it, but that has stayed with me. You're changing hearts and minds. Um, and both are important, but I I don't think, at least for me, that it's um, possible to only have it come from the mind. It's um, you you need to have you need to have stories as well. I think Steve, um, it, it makes a difference when you're working with organizations so I, I work with the police I work with housing authorities I work with the health trust and I think in those big institutions where there are very strict guidelines about what you can and can't do and say you can't um, legislate for what people think and what you can get very often is compliance so people will comply but it doesn't mean they're committed to it so I think with those agencies I would always be trying to work and get beyond compliance to commitment so it's personal commitment to stand up and speak out. I think that's very, very important. So, so um, we both know from uh, the US and from Northern Ireland that there are <coughs> people who, <coughs> excuse me, that there are um, people who are extraordinarily upset and angry at immigrants coming in. Have you had success in changing the minds of those people, the ones who might engage in violence? I would like to hope so, but I think it doesn't happen overnight. I would see in some of those communities, if you remember I was saying about the Polish people arriving in the early days, 2004, um, I remember being back in those communities a few years ago and there were issues around some of the Romanian Roma people who would who would have arrived. Um, and the community were saying, these people are coming and they're behaving really badly and they're this and they'll never integrate. And I said, 
tell me a wee bit about the Polish here. Say, oh, the Polish are great. They, they, they're just part of the community now. They're just, they're just us, Pol- you know, us Polish, our Polish. And I said, the things you're saying about the Romanian Romanite, you said about them 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And you've got to know them and you've changed them. So just think about it. So I do think, and some of them were the hardliners, but there's something in human nature that always has to have somebody to look down on and somebody who's lower in the pile. And so there are a few people. I think some people have have definitely changed. Um, but there are always going to be some people who want to grumble and want to find somebody to scapegoat. And I think that's one of the issues. Scape, you know, migrants are very often scapegoats in society. They're the ones that are causing the issues around housing and lack of school places and, you know, waiting lists for healthcare which is just a nonsense and sometimes it's going in with facts and figures is what can make the difference and if you can harness that I don't know anger or aggression to get them to fight for the for rights of other people sometimes that works it's not one size fits all you are listening to change agents conversations with human rights and social justice advocates and on WERUFM I am Steve Wessel, the host of Change Agents. My guest today is Denise Wright, who has worked to help immigrants coming to Belfast, Northern Ireland for many years. Have have you, in the work you do, have you ever been in a situation uh, relating to anger over immigration where uh, you thought that you might be in danger? Um. Not, not physical, not physical danger. I suppose I'm a little fearless. I I worked in the communities in North and West Belfast, probably the areas most impacted by the conflict during the Troubles. So I don't frighten easily. Um, and I do think there is something about being a female. Something that goes against the grain to say that. But I know there are situations that if I had been a male in, I it could have ended up in physical, physical aggression because I'm a woman and because I can put my mommy voice on, um, I think there might be things I've got away with. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure if it's even politically correct to say that. But I do think in in the culture of Northern Ireland that that, that, that has helped. <laughs> I think, sorry, Steve, maybe it's worth saying, I do sometimes fear in the situations I'm in, if I would be too vocal, I might put others at risk. So... I know if I go in and tackle a situation, and I have seen others do this in an insensitive way, that it can end up in a brick going through somebody's window, but it's never my window. It's going to be the window of somebody who's a vulnerable migrant. And that's where I would, oh, that, that I suppose would be where any fear or anxiety I would have in oh, trying to manage that. I, I think that it's, it's very, um, it's, it's difficult to decide what could be violent. And I think uh, that my guess is that both of us have been in situations which could have resulted in violence. But um, as you talked about um, pre- presenting in ways where you are, are, are confident and that you are um, looking to somebody to um, to to, to come to civility and, and respect. Um, 
I, I know I've had a couple of times I had to walk away uh, because I thought that at this point things were escalating. But yeah. I think one of the things as well is because we're in a post-conflict situation here, to say in communities, I recognise you did not invite a load of new people to come in and live in your communities. You don't have enough resources. You don't have sufficient housing. Some of the areas I've worked in don't even have their own schools because the schools in those areas have closed down, that you're living with many, many issues. So I understand the complexities and why you might resist new people or other people coming in, but it does not excuse this behaviour. And I think when you go in, and you have a level of compassion and you attempt to be non-judgmental, people will see that. And I, I always say I'm not here just to support migrants. I'm here to, for everybody. Um, that my job is as much to support local, the local, the long-term communities as the newer communities. My job, I say, is about, it's about peace building and about building a cohesive community so that everybody benefits. Nobody, if we have a cohesive community where everybody gets on well together, there are no losers. And uh, do you think that that part of the, the anger toward immigrants is that there are people living in uh, communities, perhaps low-income communities, who feel that they are not um, progressing, that there's um, that they're still uh, living in uh, communities where people um, uh, can't get jobs, and there's that turns to bitterness. I think that's absolutely true. People feel, yeah, that they're they're bottom of the pile. That there's a threat. That there's not enough to go around already and that people who are arriving in are getting a share of this. And particularly in deprived areas, most of the housing, much of the housing will be social housing. So that's provided through government. And here, what you do is you get points, depending on your situation, how many children you have, size of your family, how you are economically, whether you have physical needs. And so very often somebody maybe who've arrived in the country who, who's relatively new here will have a high number of housing points because of the situation, particularly if they're from a refugee background and will get housing. And you might find that somebody in that local community had been in the housing list for 10 years. When they see somebody who's arrived and is getting housing straight away, that naturally causes resentment. Um, and, and we have to understand that as well. So it's separating out the emotion from the facts and trying to deal with that. And so, you know, housing for us at the moment is the biggest pinch point. There, there's plenty of work and um, because we have had Brexit, because the UK has come out of the European Union, Northern Ireland is part of that. We have an, an immense short, um, shortage of workforce. So jobs aren't the issue at the minute housing, housing is. Can, can you talk about the work that we did together, and it's not the first time that we've worked together, but just um, just several weeks ago on an island in a lake in Northern Ireland. Yes, that, that was, a, was a wonderful few days, particularly because the sunshine, and it doesn't often do that at this time of year here. But um, this was Belfast City Council, the community safety unit had decided that... Um, there was a piece of work needing done around addressing racist hate crime. And you and myself were, were asked to facilitate that. So uh, a group of people 
from a range of agencies, from um, from policing, community workers, um, people who are working in organisations supporting um, sort of um, criminal offenders to be rehabilitated. Yes, where every a whole mix of people came together, and they were trained to deliver community dialogues, which is really bringing people together from um, the the in, in the in yes you would call them immigrant communities. We tend to call them newcomers from newcomer communities and existing communities to talk about similarities and differences, and generally the similarities are far far greater than the differences. But it is important to recognise difference as well. But then to look at hate crime. So you had already done focus groups. You had comments from people explaining some of the situations they had found themselves in very hard hitting. And so we were giving people, um, I suppose, a true picture of the level of prejudice and bias that is out there in, in Belfast. And for some of the people there, that was quite shocking for others. They weren't surprised, but it's still very hurtful. And so they were supporting in these community dialogues people to recognise the harm that's done, even in racist language, never mind um, when it escalates to, to behaviour or to violence, um, to commit to being able to speak out. And these people in pairs will be uh, facilitating dialogues, uh, both in Protestant and Catholic neighbourhoods and and hopefully sometimes uh, with people from both. Yes, and and I know the participants are already getting together to plan some of these, or there are some in the pipeline already, which is, is really encouraging. When I began this with yourself many years ago, these were very difficult conversations to have in Northern Ireland. I think we're in a different environment at the moment, and there's more of an appetite for it. So I'm very hopeful that this will make, that, you know, that project will make a significant difference. I, I think one of the things about being the work I've done in in Northern Ireland is perhaps the uh, uh, the first time I've ever been in a place where it was really helpful to be Jewish, um, <laughs> and that um, because that, that things may have changed somewhat over over the years relating to. Palestine and Israel, but but um, that um, that people knew that I um, I didn't have a um, I didn't have a stake in in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do remember Steve when we were working doing some of that schools work. I'm sure it's ten years ago now. Um, one of the young people asking you, "Did Jews still exist?" Which just shows the lack of. I suppose global understanding yeah. in, in Northern Ireland. Um, I can't remember what I answered. Maybe I just said, "Well, I'm here." That might have been a good answer. Um, <laughs> what, what What was the or one of the most difficult incidents you had to deal with relating to immigration? Oh goodness, I spoke. Hate crime incidents are always incredibly difficult. In the early days, I would go out to housing, go out to the houses with an uh, interpreter because the police weren't able to go in. It didn't take long for police to put their hate crime advocates now in place who do that work. But 
I think I'm trying to it's hard to pick one out of out of so many, but going to a house where there'd been an incident and sitting down with somebody who was telling me about their story of having escaped Somalia and what had happened to them then, the trauma they'd been through, and just seeing that the fear and the anxiety, which had begun, knowing that person had begun to dissipate in their life, they'd begun to feel settled, feel they were in a safe, secure place at last when they had been given housing, and then the housing had been attacked. And just to see the sheer distress of thinking, will you ever be safe? Will you ever be safe again? Was was just heartbreaking. And and you do hear stories from people all the time about what's happened in their pasts. And you can't unforget that. I mean, that's something as a nurse, I suppose, I have a level of ability to cope with my nursing background. But it's very hard to hear those things. And I imagine you've been in similar situations. Uh, I And I think the ability to absorb those stories works really well until something just sort of snaps and... Um, and it doesn't feel all right. Um, yeah, Steve, I, I'm very fortunate in that one of my best friends is a senior trauma therapist in Northern Ireland. And it does help to sometimes have somebody you can just go, and they get it because they understand that when you do this work, and I'm certainly not from the cold face like many other people who have to hear it for more, but there is a level of vicarious trauma when you, you speak and, and yourself, I suppose, from, you, you know, your your hate crime background will, will, will understand that. And you have to recognize it and you have to meet those emotions head on and deal with them. Yeah, I and for me, it's um, uh, over a long period of time, it's something that uh, both I, I learned to deal with, but also know that at some point um, I won't be uh, dealing with it well and, and hopefully will will recognize that. Um, so can you can you talk about one incident that you've already talked about some, but perhaps another one that was just where everything seemed to uh, turn up, you know, right side up. Um, it was we, oh goodness, I can I can remember very clearly. Um, a number of years ago, we it's not I suppose it's a wider it's a wider range of incidents. So in one of the areas in in Belfast, there um, the Northern Ireland football stadium is there, and there was an international football match between Poland and Northern Ireland. A number of Polish hooligans, football hooligans, turned up, quite far right kind of, and and caused a lot of trouble at that, and a lot of damage was done in the local community as people were moving to and from. The football match. The next day, some members of the local community took it into their own hands to attack Polish homes in retribution for this, and it escalated. The police got on top of it, and it was it was very difficult, very painful for the local community, very painful for the Polish community. But I was brought in then, uh, you know, as the I suppose an unbiased kind of facilitator to have discussions because obviously the police were in the middle of this as well and both sides felt police had dealt sort of unevenly with it but usually the truth lies in the middle so after a lot of talks and negotiations and discussions that the, the Polish Association wrote a letter of apology to the local community for what had been 
done by the Polish hooligans. The local community wrote a letter to the Polish Association saying we are sorry about what was done to Polish residents um, by some members of this community. And things began to settle down. But at that point, local people were saying, well, we should get to know our Polish neighbours better. And we began some Polish lessons. We began to do a lot of events. We took a mix of, within within months, we were taking out day trips onto the, down past where the Titanic was built on the Ligon River in Belfast, a mix of Polish and local people. And we started, they started to build relationships. And really since that time, they haven't looked back. So what came out of a very difficult escalation, which probably began by saying those Polish people did this to us, we'll do this back to them. Um, and escalated to violence, something very positive moved forward. And that community now have a lot of Polish people living in it very contentedly. The children at school, you wouldn't even know their, their sort of ethnic background, that they speak with a Northern Ireland accent and are well integrated. Yeah, that's a really important story. And uh, I, I think um, everywhere, and certainly in the US, that uh, the, the children um, who came over as um, at a young age, or perhaps even were born in um, in Belfast or in uh, in Maine, that um, that they they're speaking the not just English but the dialect that's around them. And yes. uh, and that just make that makes a a a big difference. So w- one of the things that I I thought was um, important, uh, and we're by the way coming toward the end of our time, but during the workshop, the three day workshop on that island, we had three police officers, um, and one of those police officers wrote that um, this was one of the first times I've been uh, with uh, people who weren't police who looked at me just as a human being as mm-hmm. opposed as to somebody with a badge. Yeah. Does that resonate in terms of uh, what's happened it, in Northern Ireland? It, it does. There's still a lot of stereotyping. I mean, Police are stereotyped as well. And there are some fantastic people within the PSNI. That's the Police Service of Northern Ireland. There are always going to be a few bad eggs in any organisation, in any society. But I think um, the, the police who were there were able to just be completely frank and open. And I think that is one of the things that we're able to do in these dialogues. See, for the, 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 I suppose... Trying to, have, trying to get the words correct in this, but the format that you have this in creates a safe environment. And I think that is where what it comes down to is creating a safe environment where people are just people and human beings and can relate at that level. That removes the stereotyping. You're you, I'm me. We may have all these other labels, but at the end of the day, if one of us isn't safe, none of us are safe. Thank you for that. And uh, in really about 90 seconds, um, I wanted to turn to a very different project that you are hoping to do sometime in the near future, which is um, to take your 
sailboat and across the Atlantic. <laughs> I That is something we've had a dream for for quite a while. My husband and myself, we have a 40-foot boat and we would really like to do the transatlantic crossing in the I suppose in the steps of some of those who've left this island before. And yes, it's a, it was a very exciting, it's a very exciting thought. Catch the trade winds, head down to the Canary Islands and then across the Caribbean and then hopefully to the coast of the US. Um, that sounds exciting and um, a little bit scary to me. Um, <laughs> but when, um, but hopefully uh, next when you come with your family to the US, you'll come to uh, to my home for a visit and I can take you out in a canoe. Um, not quite the same <laughs> thing as crossing the Atlantic, but... Um, that's, that sounds wonderful. I have been to Maine once before. Uh, I have family who spend a significant part of the year there and it is a fabulous part of the world. Well, Denise, I just want to thank you. This has been a um, a wonderful almost an hour and uh, and thank you so much for what you've said but uh, perhaps much more so for the work that you have done for so long and has changed the minds and hearts of so many people uh, you are listening to Change Agents Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU-FM. I am Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guest today has been Denise Wright, who has worked to help immigrants coming to Belfast, Northern Ireland for many years. You can listen to Change Agents on WERU on the first Thursdays of every month at 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. at 89.9 on the FM dial. You can also listen to Change Agents on the World Wide Web. Thank you.